Welcome to Wisco Dice. I am your host, the one, the only, the Conesy with the most, and I am joined by this illustrious group of wonderful co-hosts. Who all do we have on today's episode? Hey, we got Brian, sometimes Stark Raving Mad here. Matt Failer, the Ghostwalker. And this is Suzanne. This is episode 97 of the Wisco Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast! Woo! And today is August 29th, 2022. And with all that excitement, we will cover today back to school games that help augment specific classes. Our interview with sophisticated Cerberus Games team. In our hobby corner, we'll catch up on our miniature painting and hobby projects. And then we will also dive into the games that we have been playing. But first, let's dive into a few announcements. First up, Wisco Dice, particularly myself, is uh, am hosting uh, Noble Knight Games on October 29th, The Long Halloween, which is going to be a Batman miniature game tournament. This tournament will be a standard 350 reputation, 1500 funding Batmatch event. All of the information and the event event pack with all of the extra details will be posted to our website with the show notes for this episode. On top of that, we are going to be launching our Extra Life 2022 effort. We had such a blast doing Extra Life last year that we'll be doing it again this year. Catch further announcements uh, via our social media and or next month's episode of the podcast. We'll have information in, the sh- in, in our show notes available for how you can donate to the Wisco Dice team. But make sure you save the date for November 5th, 2022, because that's when all of the Extra Life festivities will be taking place. Um, Again, tribute and more information will be getting released on what Wiscodice is precisely doing for for Extra Life in 2022 will be coming. But if you need, if you feel the need to donate, all the information will be in the release release with the show notes for this episode. With that, that was a lot of announcements, all sorts of new stuff coming. Let's dive into what games we have been playing. <laughs> All right, I guess I'm going to kick us off here. I don't know if I can quite match that hype, but I'm going to be talking about The Spill. This is a pretty new game. I think it just came out as kind of a Gen Con-ish release. Uh, it's published by Smirk and Dagger. Playtime's about 60 minutes. Uh, player count can be one to four players. I think Ben and Suzanne, you two had played a few rounds, and then Suzanne and I along with one of our other friends, played a few rounds of it recently. It's kind of an interesting game. Well, the general theme of it is uh, it's like a oil rig out in the ocean has some kind of accident. There's an oil spill, and uh, you are going to kind of form this team of uh, different workers. I think there's like eight different workers you can choose from. Every game, you'll always play like four of the different people, and they all have kind of different abilities that'll help you on each of your turns, and you're trying to contain this oil spill, you're trying to like rescue animals, and you're trying to clean up as much oil as you can before it gets too bad. My favorite thing of the game is kind of some of the components. There's a pretty neat like dice tower to it. It's kind of set up to look like an oil rig, and all the 
there's dice in the game that are kind of form the oil. So in dropping them through the dice tower, it kind of distributes them in these different zones. And then the number on the dice kind of further puts them in a certain area. And that's kind of how the oil flow is kind of controlled out of the thing. And the tower looks pretty cool. It works pretty good. It does put a lot of randomness into the game, which may be one of my critiques, but we'll get into that later. So that's pretty cool. Like, so the tower's in the center, and then it's distributing the oil dice around it. And like out there in the ocean, your ships are kind of on the outer edges, kind of circling that. You move around, and you can kind of do different things. You can either pull some of the animals that are out on the board. You can try and snag them before they get contaminated. Otherwise, um, if they get contaminated and oil remains on them at the end of your turn, they'll end up going to sick, sick bay which is one of the uh, ways you can lose the game. Um, you can either have, like, I think it's one of each type of animal. I think there's six different types of animals. If you have one of each in sick bay, that's one of the losing conditions. Or if you have three of any one type of animal, that'll be one of the losing conditions as well. I believe there's, like, six or eight of each animal. Um, and then uh, the other thing you're trying to do is try and... Uh, collect a bunch of oil so it's a little harder you have like um whatever a certain amount of actions you can take on your turn it's a little harder to pick up oil otherwise you know i just push oil back in to the spill that kind of you'll pull the dice off still but it'll go back into the bag and can kind of recirculate out later otherwise if you're able to actually remove the oil you kind of collect it and kind of the i don't know if you'd call it like the scoring board of the game which is kind of tracking your progress throughout the game um so I thought it was kind of interesting. You always play with four specialists. So no matter the type of the amount of people you play, like you can figure like two players and you can play two or you can kind of trade off who's playing what. And that kind of gives you some replayability that you won't always have all of them in kind of different combinations will try and help you meet your wind conditions. And the wind conditions of the game, there's like, I think, three levels of cards. And I'm pretty sure they all have like three goals on them. And so there's some replayability there of how hard the objectives you're trying to complete are to do. I think that covers most of the general gameplay. I think I commented earlier, I might be a slight critic of the game. It was just a little frustrating. Like, I thought we were playing pretty well. We played two rounds of it. We kind of succumbed to the same fate twice, which was kind of frustrating. Like, with the randomness of how the dice spill out of the tower, even, like I said, I thought we were doing pretty well. You can just kind of be out of position and just kind of out of luck in a couple quick turns or something. It seems like it could go pretty bad, and we ended up having too many of the same type of animal going to the sick bay twice, which ended up losing our game. But it would have been nice to pull out a win. I kind of like fighting against the the game and the strategizing with everybody since it's like straight co-op and you're not really competing against each other at all but even if you do everything right it seems like you can still get unlikely and lose the game better suzanne you have any more thoughts about it well i can say it was very frustrating that we lost two games in a row when you and i were playing um because yeah ben i heard and I have... you and ben did pretty good <laughs> yeah, we've played at the medium level. We've lost, we've played it three times. Once at the easy, which I think is the one we lost, and then twice at the medium. 
which it did not seem all that much more difficult for us. But like what you were saying about the dice rolling too, it's very random and that can really, you know, make or break what's going on a little bit too. Uh, so that's, I mean, it is kind of fun. Like you had that suspense of the dice are falling, what's going to happen, you know? So that was really kind of cool. I will say I, you know, I, I wanted to buy this game because dice towers are fun. <laughs> ben likes to play, play games with dice in them. And I wasn't really expecting to enjoy it as much as I have. We actually even featured it on Board Game Brunch a couple weeks ago because I do just enjoy the dropping of the the dice and the pretty colorful sea animals. So I don't know. It's It's a fun, silly game for me. But I don't know. What do you think about it, Ben? This game is basically pandemic with a crazy dice tower that makes things probably a hair more random, which makes it slightly more difficult for people to quarterback the game, I think. That said, I think the the key strategically in this game that maybe what's working for just when Suzanne and I play is keeping an eye on the prize of those goals and understanding like the biggest danger for you to lose is those animals early in the game. So clearing out as many of the animals as you can where they're double stacked Depending on your goals, you might have, like, maybe you have to save one or two, or or you have to prevent one from getting damaged at all. That can be very big. And then moving into dice elimination. Don't get sucked into eliminating dice too early. Just push them back. It's far more action point efficient while you're busy saving animals. And once you have those animals kind of under control and you maybe have a couple of rows of animals saved, then you can start worrying on killing those dice off and putting more effort to that. That's kind of what I've, you know, what I think I've seen work in the two games that Suzanne and I have played. Uh, If you're a fan of Pandemic, though, I would recommend picking up the spill, but it is an okay, so far, at least in my three plays, it's an okay co-op game. Yeah, I feel like it's a a little less serious, maybe, or definitely at least not as much of a time sink as Pandemic, so you can kind of run through it pretty quick and shrug it off if you lose or try again so (laughs) pretty cool game though it's definitely quicker than pandemic yeah gameplay time definitely 20 minutes yeah it says 50 minutes on the box but i don't i think both of our games together when brian and i play was maybe 50 minutes with a teach don't you think like it was not that long (laughs) yeah it definitely wasn't very long and yeah maybe like a small little teach and figure it out for our first time but and i want to say we were probably at least halfway through the game when we lost too like i said i thought we were doing pretty good and then just like a couple lucky unlucky things like we couldn't even get a chance to kind of whatever right the ship as you could say (laughs) but i'd definitely try it again i have to conquer it sometime (laughs) yeah that seems very reminiscent to me of how things can go sideways in pandemic it's just a little bit quicker so we can stack a couple of epidemic cards really close together. Oh my so god, yeah. Things go sideways in a hurry. If you like, oh, we'll be all right. And then all of a sudden it's like the the absolute worst <laughs> thing happens and like the next epidemic card <laughs> it lands and yeah, it gets ugly real fast. But the best part about both of those games is that it if it goes sideways, the game the game is done in a hurry, whether you're successful or you fail. So you That's can always true. just re rack and go again. That's true. 
I've had a few games of Pandemic that did yeah. not last very long. So, yeah, this is. <laughs> I was gonna say with. I was just gonna say with Spill, like that's why I was meaning. Like I feel like it happened so quick, you couldn't even have a chance to react. It's not like oh, you see it going bad, and like you're trying to fight back for a lot kind of thing. It just like all of a sudden it's like oh crap, I guess you know we lost. <laughs> so that's frustrating, but at least it's quick. I guess puts you out of your misery. So let's dive into our next game, The Fall of the Mountain King from publisher Burnt Island Games. This game takes about two to three hours of play for one to five players. It is the prequel game to another game that this publisher has has released, uh, which is In the Hall of the Mountain King, which I think I'm the only person on the show to have played it. I did not really care for In the Hall of the Mountain King. So I was very skeptical when Suzanne signed us up to try this game at Gen Con. Uh, however, I immediately uh, thought this game was pretty darn good, and we had to get a copy and snag the last copy of it at the show. In the game itself, uh, a gnome evasion is basically happening of immense magnitude that's threatening all of the tribes in the that are in this the, the of trolls that are in this game. And really, at a high level, what that means is that uh, it is a territory control game where you're awarded points for a number of things. All of the time, though, you're faced, all of the players are, they're faced with a single common threat, which is the gnomes. So while you want to score the most points to win, you're kind of forced into this interesting situation of having to co-op slash score points for yourself kind of game because those little prick gnomes are coming for all of your all of your trolls and you just continually feel this swarm push you back push you back push you back the entirety of the game so the game is played over three waves at the end of those three waves whoever has the most honor aka points wins the game so at the start of each round what happens is they have these cards. They have a variety of interesting symbols on them, and it's probably the most challenging, complex part of the game to understand. These cards, including your the starting card that everybody gets, uh, represents your ancestry, which is kind of all of your learned skills, like the trolls that are under your command, they have, right? So it could be, you know, are your are your trolls very good at reproduction and and swarming more trolls to the map, or are your trolls very good at moving and attacking things? Very, All these various things. When you get a card, it becomes, you, you overlap it. It's a tactile kind of thing. You kind of overlap it onto you, your existing cards. You can't make your cards more than a 6x6 six six grid. It's kind of cool like that. And then you move on to the main part of the game, the battle phase of the game, where you're actually, then you're adding your trolls to the map, you're moving them, uh, you're influencing troll champions to try to come to your side. Uh, you're doing all of these these kind of things to kind of take control of sections of the board, beat off the gnomes, add more trolls to the board, those kind of things. And then it all sums up, when everybody's done taking their actions, it all sums up at the end of what's called a wave. It ends up with more gnomes coming onto the board and just hor- these hordes of these little pricks uh, killing off your trolls and taking over the board and just frustrating all of the players at the table. 
So there are a number of ways that you can earn points during the game. You can earn them from defeating the gnomes. Obviously, defeating gnomes is good. You don't want them on the table, so you get points for that. But uh, also when the gnomes invade, you score points for losing your trolls to those gnome invasions. So if the gnomes come on and you're already at a spot or territory on the board, then both the gnome and one of your trolls dies. And guess what? You score points for that. Benefiting from certain champion abilities. So you, there's this mechanism in the game that during the during that battle phase that you can push influence to try to claim some of these champions for the for further rounds in the game the champions come with special abilities some of those special abilities include earning ways to earn more honor for waves one and two you're going to score points for controlling caverns for wave three still works for controlling caverns but it changes up the mechanic a little bit on how you score points and then finally your ancestry can contain these elder symbols which are absolutely worthless when you're playing the game they can't ever be covered up they're just kind of stuck spots on your on your player mat at the end of the game you score a point you can score a boatload of points if you have a boatload of elder symbols on your cards what's really awesome about this game is just the i'm gonna say my favorite part of this game is one of it is it is one of the best territory control games I've played, and that's saying a lot. I don't know if it's the absolute best. I need a few more plays of it. But what's nice is it, you, you're constantly being pushed back by the game itself. Like, all of your battling is against the game itself, so you're never getting frustrated at anybody else at the table for doing something horrendous to you. Now, there is definitely player interaction components and things that other players can do to kind of mess you up or or cause you all sorts of grief and cause you maybe not score enough points or whatever, because that's still definitely there. It's a high-player interaction game, but uh, it doesn't suffer from the what I call the Game of Thrones, the board game syndrome, which is one of the early territory control games I played, where one player can be almost effectively eliminated from the game right at the beginning and then have to sit there for three hours. This game, that can't happen. At least I don't believe it can happen having played it a, a couple of times now. So that's one of the, my favorite things with why it kind of falls into that favorite territory control game. The game itself visually looks really cool. I, that was one thing that I, I definitely thought in its uh, prequel game. We looked at, It had a very good visual look, very good table presence. Yes, I think the rulebook could be slightly better. It, overall, I think the components, the quality of the the quality of the game, uh, it's it's a very good game. Matt, I know I kind of put you on the spot the other day after doing what was a really bad teach, and I think you were the only person that might have read the rules for this game, and you kind of took over, kind of keeping the things together at the table. What did you think of Fall of the Mountain King? I really liked this one, and and it could be that I just had a really like every once in a while when you play a game, something just clicks in your head. And territory controls are one of the ones I, I I enjoy, like you. But I loved all the different aspects of this game. So like like he he mentioned the and it's hard to visualize, but these ancestries that you build, which is ultimately a six by six grid, um, dictates how your turn will go. So 
depending on how you build your ancestry and the things that you cover up, you like the symbols that are in your ancestry determine how strong of an action you can take and, and how many different types of actions you can take. So there's a lot of strategy about looking at your ancestry board and then being able to kind of plan your turnout and things like that. Um, I do think based on what you're, you've described, and I talked a little bit with Suzanne about this is I feel like this game may play differently with different numbers of people. Um, you know, Ben and Suzanne talked to me a little bit about how those gnomes were everywhere and it was hard to control them and they were everywhere on a two-player board. Um, we play on the same size board we played with the three players. Um, I think with three players on that same size board, we could contain the gnomes a little bit. They weren't like everywhere. So there was a lot of times where we could kind of control them and keep them a little boxed in. Um and it was a little nicer to have three people to kind of beat them back at times. Um, so you may find the game varies how easy it is to play depending on the number of players. But overall, I just really enjoyed it. I didn't think it was terribly hard to learn. After the first few rounds, you kind of really um, kind of figured out what you were doing. Um, but, you know, a very solid game really easy i thought to understand the scoring but it could be that just this is the type of game that clicks in my head um you know i did feel a little bad because i will say like ben said i think i was the only person who'd actually read the rules and uh i did feel bad because i i pretty much slaughtered the other two people at the table which i, I felt a little bad about but again that could be just this game clicked in my head too so so I'll say I generally do not care for area control games or territory control games, and I try to stay away from them. Um, but this one has pretty colors that aren't overwhelming. And by pretty colors, I don't mean like um, like all flowery and everything. It just it's very complimentary. They're not gaudy in your face. They complement the game. They actually help with understanding what the different areas are and who's doing what. But there's other ways that you can score points besides just area or territory control, which I, I did like that. You can influence these champions, and then that can get you points. And you can, you know, fight some of the gnomes, and that can get you some points. So it mitigated the parts of games that I don't really like so much. So I that was a lot of fun for me. At, when Ben and I played it at Gen Con, we played a, was a four-person game, I think. So it yeah. was on the flip side. We only ended up playing one round uh, there, but or one wave, I guess it's called in this game. And but it was on, so it was on the flip side, and so then you were the smaller player count, and there was starting to get a few of these gnomes all over it, uh, but. You know, it's, it'd be interesting to play it at, with five players. I'd like to see how that does work to see if it does feel a little different. But it is definitely a good game, and it's kind of got a little bit of something for everyone that you want to, you know, that likes to play different types of games. If they had any single dig against this game, it's that during a wave, you will be basically granted X number of actions. And those number of actions go down wave to wave to wave, right? 
you can gain some bonus actions by getting little barrels in your ancestry. Those will give you bonus actions for the round. And then they have uh, some, I can't remember what the tokens they call them are, to kind of help mitigate if you don't have as many actions as maybe some of the other players. The little tracker for tracking if how many actions, basically turns you've taken in a wave, remembering to push that down is the most difficult or challenging thing in the game. I wish there was a little bit better mechanism to track how many turns you've made in a given round. But other than that, the game itself is really, really quite good. I high strides me personally, I strongly recommend this thing. I do need to actually get a few more plays on under my belt before I give it a real rating, but yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan of it. It was a lot of fun. I'd love to see it hit the table again soon, just because like you said, it was I had a good time. Like you said, there's definitely a competitive side to it, so it's not completely cooperative. Obviously you're trying to win the game, get the best um most points but uh you know there are a lot of times where you're kind of negotiating with the people to try to be like hey if we work together we can deal with the gnomes here and then we both get a little breathing room or you know stuff like that but yeah it's definitely a fun game i enjoyed it all right make sure make sure you check out wiscodice.com for all the links to the games we discussed as well as pictures of in-game play with that let's dive into our hobby corner what miniature hobby projects have we been working on? So this month, I actually have been back working on hobby projects. I have been working on Train for uh, Batman Miniatures game, so that Ben has plenty of Train for the October 29th tournament. I've been focusing on Train packs that we have from Foreground and TT Combat. So we've got a theater that is ready for Ben to put his painting uh, touch on there, um, a jewelry store, and a big house that's titled Grant's House, but it's basically a big house with balconies and a roof. So there's lots of uh, vertical movement and a lot of different corners on there, which I think will be fun. I will say the the jewelry store I was working on is <laughs> a little bit tricky because they have parts from two different models in there. So think it looks okay but yeah it was uh that was a, a nice challenge actually so i will have po pictures posted on our blog page if you're interested to see what this train looks like and hopefully we will get it to the table soon so that's my projects <laughs> i was gonna say unfortunately foreground went out of business as you were building that jewelry store so we couldn't reach out to their support to see if we could get replacement parts so that part's unfortunate but I think you did a great job uh, considering you didn't have all the bits and pieces to put that one together to make it look right and and make it look cool. So, Yes, it's a, I think it was a bit of an old Western type theme pieces with a modern jewelry store. So even old Western jewelry store. It yep. works, though. It works. So yeah. if you've been paying attention to the Wiscodice 3D printing channel on our Discord server, You'll have recently seen several pictures of my current 3D printing project, which is this absolutely massive mansion that's going to be really awesome for either putting on a table for Batman Miniature Game or Marvel Crisis Protocol or kind of anywhere where you need like this 
kind of spooky Victorian mansion. As long as you want, you know, you're able to deal with it from a gameplay perspective. That's with something that's probably going to be about three foot long when when it's done. So it's it's a long ways off, but at least I've knocked out all of the pieces for the for the very center. So I think the tallest point on this thing is something like 15 inches off the table, and it's about uh, the same level of depth from the where the main entrance is in the center of the building all the way up to the top of the the tallest tower. So that project's actually still printing in the background um, and will probably take me another two or three weeks of printing to have all the pieces together before I can put paint on it. But I'm really looking forward to hopefully getting or to getting that project done and getting it to the table at some point to, to actually play on and play some Batman miniature games uh, around it. In addition to that, and I think I talked about this on the last show was the work at my hobby work towards the new the Batman two player starting uh, starter set from Night Models. I have at this point completed the entire set. I actually ran a demo not that not that long ago. We're having it all set up and and out was nice. I will say Carmine Falcone was probably the fiddliest model in that kit to put together, and maybe the fiddliest model I put together from Night Models at this point. Just some of the little bits and pieces on that go on to his whatever 3D base is, you know, it looks cool and I really like the way the model looks, but it was just, it was fiddly and a bit of a challenge. So those are the projects I've been working on. I'm super stoked to finally get that big, heavy painting project out of the way. So now I can focus on terrain and getting things ready for that tournament coming up. So I'll pick that up. I feel like it's going to be kind of hard to follow with these massive terrain efforts. And then finishing a whole starter, that's three starters away from half of the one I just finished. <laughs> but I think I let into it that I was in the last show that I was working on. The Dark Knight sizes, like the Bane half of the League of Assassins. So a couple starters ago, I feel like I made like the most hobby progress I have in a long time though. Like I got through painting all those models pretty quick. So I did like all the the prisoners before that I kind of paired with them and I had those all done. Well the I guess the rest of the Dark Knight Rises stuff, I think it's maybe in about a month. I guess it doesn't sound too impressive to some people, but I, know, I thought that was pretty quick and impressive for me. I feel like I must be getting pretty comfortable painting my Batman stuff now. So after finishing that, I've, uh, I guess I did end up doing Catwoman from Dark Knight Rises just after that, which allowed me to switch those models to a Bane crew right away, or, or I guess Soldiers of Fortune, they're called now, rather. I've been kind of motivated by the tournament coming up in October to get a different crew for the first time in a while, uh, besides League that I've been playing forever. So my next effort is trying to get... Uh, some more like the Soldiers of Fortune models painted up to play with Bane and kind of get a full crew, get those prisoners out of there and have them up to date and ready to go by October, the end of October for that tournament. Uh, I think I've got it worked out to do like four models maybe, but if at least that I'll be doing. So hopefully I can meet those goals. I'm pretty far ahead in assembling them. I actually have... The initial models I planned to use assembled, but I thought while I was at it, I may as well just do like the 
two or three more and kind of have them all built as long as I don't get too far behind. So hopefully I'll be built pretty quick and then primed and then we'll get some painting going again. And I've kind of made a target out of it. Our Batman nights about every two weeks or so. I've been trying to kind of get one new model every night. It's kind of a every Batman game night is kind of the target I've been shooting for, which has helped me motivate. So I'm still pretty pumped to go on Batman. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get some get to work at all those starter boxes finished, uh, built and painted. <laughs> Hurry up yeah, and catch I do up actually, before they know. release another one. <laughs> I'll be four. <laughs> yeah, I think those whatever the Bane League of Assassins are the first ones from a starter I've actually painted. So I guess yeah, that's for sure because the only thing I've painted has been League stuff up to this point. So. We'll see. I think. Everything else I plan to do next is probably not starter box stuff, so we'll see how it works out. Make sure you check out whiskedice.com for all the pics of all of our projects. There's a lot of them, so there's some going to be some cool models. I just got to say, those terrain projects Suzanne were working on was working on look pretty awesome. I got to see firsthand, painfully, the Brian's new Bane models uh, kicking my teeth in. But at least they look good while they were doing it. So make sure you check out the pictures. They're they're really cool. They're all all these models, all these hobby projects will look really awesome. And with that, let's go ahead and drop uh, for a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're gonna have our interview with the sophisticated Cerberus Games folks. All right, and we're back. And we are joined by a host of individuals right now to talk to us about sophisticated Cerberus games. Jeremy, Ethan, Matt, you guys want to just give yourselves a quick introduction here for our listeners? Yeah, I'll start. I'll pass it to Ethan and Matt so we don't talk over each other. So I'm Jeremy Gannon. I've been with, actually, sophisticated Cerberus has been around for about two and a half years now. We're all from Wisconsin originally, uh, so we were born and raised there. I now live in Minneapolis. This is kind of a part-time gig for me, but it's become basically a full-time job over the past year as we're prepping for Kickstarter. I'll pass it to Ethan. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Ethan Jansen. I'm from Wisconsin. I've lived here all my life. I'm still in Appleton myself, whereas uh, Matt and Jeremy are in Minneapolis. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be on. Awesome. And uh, yeah, Matt, so I heard you heard you said uh, y'all used to do some Warhammer Fantasy coverage, and I played a lot of that and picked up Sigmar. Although Sigmar just didn't do it for me as much as Fantasy did, unfortunately. But now I've got way too many Sigmar minis laying around. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I'm also from Wisconsin and uh, I've been working on this on this stuff on Dark for a while now. Forward to hopefully a relaunch of the old Squarebase game soon, so go Games Workshop. So, I'm just kind of curious as we, we get started here, we get, you, you said, I think, the, the company started about two and a half years ago what what can you tell us about uh sophisticated cerberus games what what was really inspired you to create a company that's design that's designing board games and get into this industry that's clearly challenging to get going and get games to the market absolutely so this was kind of met we all grew up together so we went to school together back in elementary middle school and some of us high school so we know each other for a long time all of us are huge board gamers, so we all have massive collections, like way more games that we can ever play if we like actually went and played them all. 
I think I've still got like 10 at least in shrink wrap on my shelf at the moment. But we all were big into games. Uh, I've been kind of a creative person, and so so are Matt and Ethan more so than I am. And so we just started talking like, hey, we love board games. Why don't we create our own? And so Matt and I started talking, and then Matt let me know Ethan was also interested in creating a game. And so we just kind of started talking. We, we founded ourselves technically in January of 2020, so right before the pandemic hit. So Matt and I were meeting in person for the first two or three months, maybe. And then we were working on a space exploration game initially that kind of I had like delusions of grandeur about like this crazy game we could make that was super awesome because I love space. I love hexes and all this stuff. And as a first time game, it just got way too big. And so we finally were like, OK, let's put this thing on hold because it's not going anywhere. That's when we kind of transitioned into the stifling dark. And that was back in uh, March of 2020. So it's been about two and a half years now. I've been working on it. Nice, nice. And. So there's the three of you. What are all of your actual roles? Like, I'm kind of curious. Like, obviously, you're all friends, which makes things probably easy and or creatively frustrating. I'm sure there's a bit of uh, butting heads and whatnot on, on certain things. But what? how do you guys all kind of fit together to, to make the, the puzzle work? Good question. We Like you mentioned, there's some butting heads for sure sometimes every once in a while. But it, it's also nice because there's three of us. Uh, so tiebreakers are easy because there's never an even number of votes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unless we all vote for a separate thing, then it kind of sucks. But I kind of do a lot of the business-related things. So think supply chain, uh, marketing, finance, all those fun administrative tasks. I've got a background in business, so that's kind of my role in the company. And then Ethan and Matt are more the creative side of things. So Ethan does some of our graphic design, some of our icon iconography, that sort of thing. And then Matt does a lot of the story and kind of the lore building along with Ethan. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, Suzanne, do you have some questions you wanted to ask? So you mentioned about working on the space game that's uh, put on hold, which I am going to be excited to see when you do develop it, because I love space games, too. And the crunchier and the chewier, the better. Um, but what are you currently working on? What is this big game that you are ready to launch on Kickstarter? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, so we're currently working on the Stifling Dark is the, the working title of our game here, the one we finally settled on after like six or seven months, I think. And so essentially what we've got here is a, a one versus many hidden movement game. So one player is playing as a, what we call the adversary, and they're going around trying to uh, in some way stop or essentially murder the investigators. And so the Paranormal Investigators is the other team. And they're going around with their flashlights, trying to look for evidence in these maps. And in this case, our, our first map is the sawmill. It's an old abandoned sawmill. And so you've got your flashlight templates that you go around looking for evidence and trying to look for the adversary to kind of slow them down and stop them. And so it's a very high-level version of our description of our game. And we're very excited to show it off and put it out in the market. Yeah, we saw that at least uh, what you had at Gen Con. We got to peer over the small crowd that was around your booth and we were running between games and didn't have enough time to stop and say hi at the moment but we couldn't be help but be impressed by those the flashlight templates and the board i i love the one versus many kind of hidden person games so i'm really excited to get a chance to actually sit down and try this game it's clearly in, inspired off of the, like, yeah, I think it's got to be inspired off of the 80s, like, horror 
murder kind of movies, but what what really was the actual inspiration for the Stifling Dark? Obviously, it's it's much different than a sci-fi game that you originally started out trying to create. Yeah, so the Stifling Dark was actually kind of uh, my brainchild, at least at the start. Obviously, we've all put a lot of work into it, and since then, it's come a long ways. But yeah, when I when I originally was kind of thinking about it. I'm a huge fan of horror um, and slash films. Like you said, definitely a lot comes from that. Um, I've watched like all the Jason films. I'm a huge fan of the Halloween franchise, all that. And I guess, you know, I've DM'd a number of times. And as we kind of kept doing it more and more, I really wanted to do something that was kind of quick and easy to set up, but that had that kind of atmospheric and you can kind of get the uh the scary uh kind of atmosphere going so i i really wanted something that was uh, hidden movement but had that freedom of movement as well because a lot of them you know it's just point to point you don't have a lot of uh, free movement to move around especially if you want to try to do line of sight as well so that's kind of that's kind of what all came together to form the stifling dark and basically it was just like it was a game that i wanted to play but we hadn't uh seen it out there yet so I got talking with Matt about my idea. Originally, it was just I wanted to kind of make it for me and my friends to play. But I talked with Matt, and he was talking about how him and Jeremy were thinking about making a game. So we all kind of just combined forces at that point. Nice, nice. Sounds really cool. That uh, line of sight, the flashlight template, really caught my attention. Line of sight in games oftentimes is something that I always struggle with. So the idea of having this template that clearly defines for me what I can see was very <laughs> intriguing and got me really excited. I mean, I was telling Ben, like, you know, we got to, we got to really keep looking at this because I like that part of it. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. what else is going on in the game, but that's good. <laughs> what parts of this game are you guys really excited about? It's still my thunder a little bit. It's the flashlights. Oh, so sorry. That's, <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> So that's the thing that kind of I always at conventions I always say it's our claim to fame even though we're not famous. Like that's the thing that spent we spent a lot of time kind of polishing that mechanic. So we started off with a just a square grid, and the flashlights were really kind of janky. Like they were this weird looking square based grid, and then we went into kind of a hex situation briefly. That didn't work out very well, and we finally landed on our current what we call like a circle hex grid. And that's what ended up ultimately working with the flashlights. There was some math in there too about proper angles and like how big the flashlight should be, so how many spaces it will cover. But there was a lot of kind of a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears went into the development of those flashlights. And we get a lot of good feedback. Like you mentioned, it, it just catches people's eyes from a table presence perspective, but it also does a very good job of very quickly telling you kind of what spaces you can see on the board, what's visible, what's not. And to hopefully remove a lot of those edge cases about, hey, I think I can see this, but maybe I can't. So like, it's a very good way to check what you can actually see. And the response has been very good so far at conventions, whether people actually just see it as they walk by or if they actually play the game. Uh, it's a really good table presence. And that's kind of the most exciting thing about the game. But I guess the other part is just the fact that we've gotten this far. Uh, it's been a long journey. So being able to see our product, like when we got our physical prototypes, it was really, really weird. To see an actual game that we created, opening up the box, pulling out the shrink wrap, and seeing the components was really cool to see. So that in itself was exciting. But the mechanic we're most excited about is that is the flashlights for sure. 
Yeah, I was going to say, for me as well, one of the, the pieces I really like about hidden movement games is, uh, especially the horror theme, is like playing as an adversary and hiding. And then normally when you're doing actions, you're kind of giving a little bit of uh, an idea of where your location is. So when you just go silent for two rounds and don't do anything, so then people are, are really on edge. And then they think they know where you are, but you pop out right behind them and uh, just surprise everybody. It's just so rewarding. I, I was going to say, I think this mechanic is so unique in this this genre of games. Uh, when you think of a game like Fury of Dracula from, uh, I guess I don't, I think it's WizKids has it now. I'm not even sure who has it. It's been around, been around too many companies now. But that that it feels like the classic in this hidden movement movement genre. And this is just takes that idea and jumps it like to the next level. It seems really exciting. Like I said, I'm I'm super super pumped. So I think it's gonna. Ca- I from what I can see, what I've saw. The little bit we saw at the at Gen Con, it really looked like this game is going to get that horror slasher flick kind of feel, while also, uh, yeah, you just sit there and be quiet. And oh, my turn's done. What? What? What did you do? I don't know. <laughs> really get that suspense at the table. Mm-hmm. So when when can we see this game come out? When when are we? When are we going to get a chance to get a get our hands on a copy, or at least uh, give you our money so we can get a copy of it? It'll be coming on Kickstarter October fourth, and so we're just as of as of recording this, we're about a month and a half away. Uh, we will be live through Halloween, so as uh, I'm going to steal a ver- some a term from Ethan's girlfriend here from Gen Con. She always said, "Spooky month for a spooky game." I like that. Uh, so we're we're kickstarting. It just kind of worked out. We didn't actually plan it like that. Uh, but just with the way things fell together with conventions and marketing and manufacturing and all that stuff, it just worked out that we were going to start in October. Uh, so we'll be live on October 4th. Awesome. That, that's perfect. I, I think that fits this game just perfectly. They couldn't have asked for a better marketing. <laughs> that's when everyone's looking for those spooky games. You know, Whether you're going to get it there or not, you're in the mindset of looking for them. Yep. So, yes. Quick question for Matt. When you're jumping out behind people, do other players actually scream like they would in the movies? <laughs> uh, I don't know if we've had anyone actually scream, but we've okay. definitely had people, you know, give like the gas of like, oh my gosh, he's right there the whole time. We just completely missed it. So, uh, yeah, it's not quite the, the jump scare <laughs> scream level, but uh, that's really hard to pull off in a board game. Yeah, I, I'm picturing playing it in the dark and, you know, kind yeah. of with candles around you <laughs> and stuff. So That's ideal that's right probably, there. That's we probably how have a player. comment on Board Game Geek uh, that you guys should read. Now, we don't have too many comments, so it's going to be pretty easy to find at the moment. Uh, but there's a comment about somebody needed to change their pants after they played it, if I remember correctly. Oh. So <laughs> we had that, I guess. I wasn't in that game, thankfully. But that's one of the comments that's on our Board Game Geek page right now. So forgot nice. about that. I I can see like you can put the put the uh, put the mu- mood music on, dim the lights down, get the candles. This is a definitely. I think I feel like I I'm already like I'm I'm just ready to go. Like I'm ready to. I want to play this game. So the so you talked about you know some of you like space games and also kind of what inspired you to uh, create this game. What other games inspire you three? Sure. Yeah, so I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, there's a few games I I really love. Evolution is one of my favorites. 
that one i love it because it's just it feels like all the mechanics really mesh well together and they just kind of come together to make this game that's easy to pick up but it's it's different every time because you can build all sorts of different creatures i also love star wars rebellion because i think it just nails the theme and i'm obviously with this kind of a game with a horror game it's very atmospheric i love that kind of theme setting and really being able to get into it Uh, and star wars rebellion is definitely one of the ones where you feel like you're the empire or you feel like you're the rebels Uh, and then i also wanted to highlight captain sonar another hidden movement game but that's kind of like a team-based sort of uh, battleship thing and i i love that too it's it's so much fun trying to kind of work with your team to figure out where the other team might be and not try to give away too much information so all that kind of uh, inspires me quite a bit for me, I, I'm going to stick with the, the Tale of Presence focus here for a minute because I've got way too many games that inspire me that I like. But thinking strictly of Tale of Presence, one that always popped out to me is Photosynthesis. So having those trees and like the sun moving around the board, it's just very got great Table Presence with, as Ethan mentioned, the kind of thematic, uh, like you're growing a tree from the little seed to the sapling to the bigger trees. So that's always a great one. And then one that kind of blew my mind when I first played it was On Her Majesty's Service. The rot- Not only rotating pieces on the board, but the board itself rotating, depending on what you play. So that was just a really cool experience with kind of the steampunk theme. Uh, that was another game that just, the way the mechanics worked and just moving the entire board like changed everything about how you played. And you had to kind of line up your things based on the rotation of those individual pieces. That was another one that kind of just really threw me off guard when I played it for the first time in a good way. Sounds very uh, brain bendy with trying to place those things there. Yeah, I'll throw in, I'll throw in my ones as well. So I've been a a big fan of Heaven and Ale, which is very much like kind of not <laughs> not like our very heavy theme game, but it's just one I always play. Like almost almost every month, I think I play it. Uh, and one that really captures me from the suspense and intensity level is the I think it's the Alien um, Nemesis. There we go. Nemesis is really really fun. And I've I've really enjoyed playing that. Although I don't own a physical copy, I've played it lots online with the digital copy, and it's great. All of those games are great games, and yep, we have Nemesis and what's the is it Aftermath? No, not it's not it. Whatever the whatever the the sequel game to Nemesis, uh, the one where they're on Mars, we've got that one too. Both great, super thematic games. Yes. Photosynthesis. There's a lot of player interaction there. Theme. I see. I feel, I see a lot of theme and player interaction. Is that something you guys really seem to grab onto and want to include in your games as well? Because obviously, Stifling Dark's got the hidden movement interaction. So is that mm-hmm. is that something that kind of you orientate towards? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think photosynthesis is a really great example because when you place the trees down, you're you're really fighting with other players for space and like you're really you're playing against other players and i think that kind of player interaction what's driving it so much that's very much like the stifling dark where we tried to eliminate as much randomness and just kind of other little bits and pieces but just make it very much the adversary versus the investigators and i mean the investigators are all cooperative so they're all working together if that's what you like Um, but then the adversary you've got everything that they're doing is directly against each other. And they're, they're very much, the game is very much driven by your actions are going to be driven by what the other side is doing. Nice. 
is this game or do games that you enjoy like are you do you worry at all about being nice to the other people you're playing with or are you pretty okay with take that type of games I do like Take That, but I wouldn't necessarily call the Stifling Dark a Take That kind of game. It's much more you're playing against their strategy. Okay. I wouldn't say that we necessarily have like anything that's really gonna just you you get that card and you're like, oh okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna really just ruin their day. It's more like, okay, we have to react to this and we have to figure out how to deal with it. Uh, but not so much of like just we're gonna um, throw everything at them or whatever. Yeah, we're, we're looking to have someone pee themselves after playing, not uh, ruin friendships. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. So their interaction with the cooperativeness is something that doesn't always come out in games. A lot of times the player interaction seems to, you know, have the potential to ruin friendships, as you mentioned. So <laughs> it's nice to hear it that way. I guess you guys did talk a little bit about what how you guys got into this game design. Do you see yourself continuing after Stifling Dark? Like, what are future goals with this company that you've created? We have a list of, like, I don't know how many around there, like 20 or 30 ideas. Now, okay. we've been really good about only working on one at a time. That's something that a lot of people I've seen online, like, struggle with as developers, is they just want to do all the games. And so we've been very good about focusing on just this game. But we have a whole list of things. And we did start off fairly ambitious in terms of like this, the complexity of our first game, for sure, because a lot of like all this evidence we read online or all the articles we read online say to start small for your first game. We didn't read that, so after we'd already started, so it was too late at that point. Uh, but yeah. we might do something a little smaller just to, as like an intermediate game. Uh, but we do have plans for other, like we mentioned, the sci-fi game, for example. Like that's we got a little ways into that. There's obviously a lot of tweaking that needs to happen, but. Well, we still have plans for some more like complex and, and thematic games in the future, but we certainly want to continue this journey uh, and make many more games in the future. Nice. I've got a I've got a question. We're getting off the the beaten path of the initial questions that we had, so I was just thinking about the name of your company, Sophisticated Cerberus Games. That is not only a mouthful, but I'm sure there's some extra meaning there. What? How did you guys come up with that name? That that's it's just so unique. I think there's probably a story there. Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, this is where the questions get fun. Is when they go off script. It's my favorite. So, the the Cerberus idea came from the fact that there's three of us. And, you know, Cerberus three had a dog, and so we're like, okay, we're gonna do Cerberus. We're pretty sure we had a few other ideas, but like this one stuck out the most. Uh, now it's what can we put with the put the word Cerberus that's not already a company, and so we had some other fun ideas, but they are already essentially registered as businesses or some type of game or something out there, video game, whatever. And so we kind of just went with sophisticated Cerberus. I don't know if I remember why, uh, other than I really love bow ties and we got like a top hat in our logo, so it's just like you know the the fancy attire is very entertaining to put on a Cerberus, and so we went we just rolled with it. We had this is one of our voting things that having three of us help with because we had a list yeah. of like probably 20 or 30 iterations of something Cerberus and so we voted yeah. like our, our top five each we then we narrowed it down we, then we took a week off and voted for our next top favorites took a week off and like we just slowly narrowed down the list until we eventually write at sophisticated Cerberus which is to your point been a mouthful and so like on our credit cards for example it's too long to fit so it just says sophisticated <laughs> Cerberus like, yeah. it could even fit the S on there at the end. 
And so we our our acronym we go with is soft serve. If we want something quick, yeah. Uh, soft serve <laughs> is the abbreviation we usually use. And I always put ice cream at the end of it. Yep, because it makes me laugh. <laughs> and I got to make an ice cream game to go with your soft serve. <laughs> Pretty great, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, just add, just add it to your list of games that you'll get to oh. in you know fifty years. So mm-hmm. that's really nice. That's a good like re- background to that name you know with the top hats are you going to start wearing top hats when you come to conventions and everything then we all actually yeah so we each um have one of the articles um of clothing from the uh okay cerberus so i think uh, i think jeremy was the top hat matt was the bow tie and then i think i was the monocle so monocle yeah (laughs) that's really cool that that is that's a fun way for people to to find you and everything too so with all these games and everything, I noticed on your website you mentioned doing a lot of playtesting at different conventions and like at Gen Con in 2021, and um, looks like you do a lot of playtesting online. Has that, like, did that change the game significantly for you? Well, because, you know, some designers, it seems it does, some it doesn't. So I'd be curious to, like, hear how the game evolved with your playtesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Pretty much up until the last few months or so, uh, every time we played it, we would get some feedback and we'd tweak it a little bit here or there. Um, sometimes it was a lot, sometimes it was less. But I think one of the one of the best ways to kind of highlight that is in our game currently, the flashlights have a certain amount of charge and they recharge over time, but you have to manage that. That actually is a mechanic that came from uh, Gen Con online. Uh, I think it was in, I don't remember if it was what year it was. It might've been 21, but uh, yeah, that was actually feedback from one of our players that we put in the game. And it's, I mean, it's a huge part of the game now. Is this a game you mentioned that there's a map that you have with it? Are there multiple maps that are going to come off with this initial Kickstarter or future maps kind of plan for expansions? Or is that just, uh, yeah, I'm putting, you know, saying things that aren't going to happen at all. There will be one in the base game, which is the Samo. We were already working on another one called the Cave. Well, that's the it's a cave. We haven't named it yet, but it might just literally be the Cave. Uh, so we are working on other maps, and that'll be a stretch goal on the Kickstarter. Uh, but we do have plans for other maps in addition to that as well. So we've got one for sure in the base game, and then we have another one that we're working on that will be a stretch goal for the Kickstarter. But there's also opportunities for future expansions as well. So we're talking, each map is going to be very different with different mechanics. So the Sommel, for example, has windows uh, that kind of change how you move and what you can do. Like, they don't block line of sight, but they affect your movement. The cave map might have, like, one-way passages or elevation in it. There's another map we were working on that is kind of like a hedge maze where you can kind of change the, the maze, essentially. Like, you can relocate passageways. And so each map will have very different objectives and kind of mechanics. Uh, the core will obviously be the same but there will be some kind of unique aspects to each of the maps that we work on. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add on there too, the the actual escape routes are very different for each map. Um, so your objectives that you're going towards as investigators is going to be very different depending on which map you're playing. Very cool. So it sounds like there's a lot of replayability possibilities too and um, different groups and trying different things. So that sounds neat. One last thing that I wanted to just ask before we get to the wrap-up point here, but I just wanted wanted to kind of know, is there anything else about Stifling Dark or 
sophisticated Cerberus games that we didn't think to ask you guys that you want to make sure people know about before the Kickstarter launches and through the Kickstarter campaign? What 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 are the what is that? What is that one thing that we maybe missed or didn't think to ask? Well, I definitely say we're very friendly people. We have a Discord. Um, if you, anyone is interested in playing the game before it comes out, we love playing with people. If we got it on Tabletop Simulator, and uh, yeah, we're always happy to set up a time to play with people. We're friendly most of the time. To, to all, we're not friendly to each it's, other all the time. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Most of the time, we're friendly to, to other people. Um, yeah, sometimes yeah, I might, but it's only after dark. <laughs> Like that was a good summation. Uh, I do want to take a minute to like thank people that helped us out along the way. So not only the playtesters, but also just the board game design community. So we were members of a bunch of different board game design Facebook groups. We met a lot of designers along the way, and they've always been super helpful about providing feedback, giving us advice, helping us out through some design issues. And so if you're thinking of being a designer, feel free to reach out to us. We're happy to talk through any part of our development, the campaign, Kickstarter. Obviously, we're not pros or anything, but we're happy to help share opinions and are what we've learned through the journey because we've had a lot of people help us along the way so i want to make sure that we return the favor to other developers as well it does seem like a very tight-knit community amongst the developers no, no matter what companies they're working for even the bigger companies in the world they're always everybody seems like they're always looking after each other and i guess you you never know when you People end up in different or, different organizations and whatnot. Anyways, you never know when when you might have to be uh, working for one of those other companies. So it, it's great to see that, and it's the same thing across the tabletop gaming community. We're all happy to share whatever it is we know or what we do. Just real quick as we wrap up here, I just want to make sure everybody knows when to look for the Kickstarter. And we, uh, from a Wisco Dice side, we will for those of you that follow us and follow our blog, make sure that you catch our kickstart monday that'll correspond with so we'll make sure we feature this game so that everybody knows uh or hears about it uh, on kickstart monday when when that blog releases in early october so make sure you watch for that but when's that uh if you if you guys don't mind just uh where when is that game launching uh, and uh where can people find out more information if they need to we're fourth, 10 a.m. Central specifically. So 10 a.m., be ready. Um, if you search the Stifling Dark on Kickstarter right now, our pre-launch page is there. So you can go just on Kickstarter, search the Stifling Dark, and follow along. You'll get notified once we launch. Otherwise, just search Sophisticated Servers Games on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're on all three. Or Google the Stifling Dark. You'll see our board game page, among other things. So October 4th, 10 a.m. Central time is when we're launching. We'll have all of that in our show notes. We'll have links to all of that. So you guys can make sure if you're listening to this, go to wiscodice.com and you'll be able to find all of that information. With that, I want to give a big thanks to the three of you, Jeremy, Ethan, and Matt. You guys are the definitely the, the three-headed machine here. And we're looking forward to this game and many more that you create. Thank you very much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Great. Thank you. And when we come back, we'll get into the main topic for the show. And we're back. We're going to go ahead and dive in. It's that time of year. 
four back to school. All the kids are migrating back to classes. Maybe you're diving into your college courses. But we all know it is back to school time of year for appeal folks. So with that, we thought we would find a few games that we thought would be awesome to help enhance the educational experience. Why don't we get things started with Professor Suzanne? All right. Thank you, Ben. So I have teaching biology class this year, it looks like. Uh, And so my pick for biology was photosynthesis. So this is published by Blue Orange Games. I can play with two to four players. So a great small productive group size in a classroom, hopefully. And it only takes 30 to 60 minutes to play. Uh, just depending on how quickly you make decisions on it. So this is a really nice game with some 3D components of trees that are, so it's very tactile that way. Uh, there's no reading required to play. So once you explain the game to someone, if they do not speak the same language as you, but you still can explain the game or they do not read, they can still, they can play it, which I think is a great, you know, classroom game that way in this game you are taking a tree through its entire life cycle from sapling or from actually from seeds all the way up until it is big tree in the forest and then it recycles and the whole life cycle of it's shedding its seeds and it grows again so you earn points for having your tree grow and uh the sun revolves around this board and you can block your opponents or your own trees if you want scoring points by blocking the smaller trees from the sun so you are you having that whole you know why do you want to be the big tall tree and how do the little trees take so long to grow so you're going to kind of do that there are expansions to it where there's a moon also but Expansion is not necessary to play this game and keep its replayability and also enjoy it. So it's it's just a nice eye-catching game where you are physically moving these trees and changing it and doing your thing, but also need to be aware of what other your opponents are doing on it. So my pick for biology game is photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is a lot of fun. It's a great game that teaches that whole, like, how trees grow and how forests succeed. But you do have to, I think you want to be careful. It's a pretty heavy player interaction game where some folks can get a little frustrated or upset potentially when their trees get blocked because the other players are are blocking them out or whatnot. So things to, to kind of be cautious on. What Suzanne, what age group do you think would be perfect to start teaching your biology course to? My experience would be probably third graders could definitely handle this. I don't know what ages it actually is recommended for. I did not look that part up. Third graders to adults. All right. Starting them young. Professor Matt, I believe you've got a geography course to teach us. I do. So one of the courses I thought, uh, games I thought would be really good that kind of deals a bit with geography is a train building game called Ticket to Ride. So 
Um, the nice thing about Ticket to Ride, it does have a huge variety of different maps. So if let's just say you're not from the U.S. and you'd rather, you know, your kids learn a little bit about European countries, there are European versions, game specifically dedicated to, I think, the Swiss Alps. Uh, and a numerous other areas. So in the game, you it takes it, it usually supports the base game at least, which is based in the US, supports two to five players. They say it takes about 30 to 60 minutes to play. I feel like it takes a little bit longer than 60 minutes if you've got like the full five players. But you know, it's really about building trains that interconnect between different cities. So you have to be able to figure out what types of routes you need to build but you also have to be able to identify where is this city these multiple cities spread throughout the country so you might have two or three cards and routes you're trying to build so you're somebody has to spend a little bit of time thinking through how would i get from point a to point b to point c to point d so you know there's a bit of map reading and thinking through the strategy very similar to photosynthesis, I do, it doesn't take a ton of reading, but you do have to at least be able to understand what the names of the cities are and be able to find them on a map. But it is fairly straightforward to learn. You know, it's something that the manufacturer says can be done by eight-year-olds and up. You know, I think the eight might be a little bit on the young side, but definitely very similar to Suzanne's. I think that ten-year-old and up to adults uh, can have a good time. I do think Ben's point of caution though is warranted for this game too. You know, there's a lot of different ways to get from one coast to the other, but there are definitely ways to play Ticket to Ride, which can be aggressive, blocking people, buying routes that they might need. And uh, so, you know, uh, just depends on how you, how you treat it as a family or, you know, if you're trying to teach somebody, um, if everybody likes to play aggressive, that's great. If not, you might want to build some ground rules. So, I will say that Ticket to Ride for us was a great educational game for Suzanne's daughter, Ashley, who dove right in and picked it up as a teenager and started mastering not only defeating us, but then diving into some of the, you know, forcing us to dive into some of the variants of Ticket to Ride, like Ticket to Ride Europe and Ticket to Ride Asia, I think we have, or, or Nordic, oh no, Ticket to Ride Nordic countries, that's what we have. So that uh, now we're learning new cities and locations or, you know, around the globe on top of the game itself, and of course she still beats us more times than not. So always good for the, I guess, the teenager to win. All right, Professor Brian. You're taking on one of my favorite classes in the marketing and economics. What's going on, man? All right. Um, everything I learned about marketing and economics came from this game. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about Smartphone Inc. I guess it's published by Arcane Wonders. You can play one to five people. It's pretty quick playtime. Hour, hour and a half. And kind of the idea of this game, you're going to be the CEO of a smartphone company, and you're going to kind of control all aspects of that company from like developing your phone, marketing it to your different regions around the world, and picking what price to sell it at, and researching new developments and everything like that. So I thought it was a pretty good uh, example to kind of get some 
what I assume are pretty basic marketing ideas down and maybe a little economics. Um, so the game plays, it's over five rounds. Each round, you're going to have eight phases. Uh, so in the planning phase, uh, you kind of have these two cards that have like these different symbols on and you got to arrange them a certain way. And that's going to control like kind of the capabilities, I guess you could maybe say your smartphone, you know, like you're designing what your phone's going to actually do. So I guess there's kind of like some product development sprinkled in here too. The next phase would be pricing, which is a pretty straightforward kind of economics marketing thing. Like you can either price your phone kind of low and you're going for those more of a volume sale. Otherwise maybe you'd, make it a bit fancier and it's a little bit higher and are hoping for that kind of higher profit margin to help you win. Then simply you're going to produce your phones in the next phase, see how many you can make. And then uh, again, there's uh, like some development research phases that's going to kind of expand what you can put into your cell phone to make it better and more appealing to people. And that'll can also research to improve your selling ability in different regions throughout the world and i guess also as a game mechanic there's some kind of more special powers in that as well the next phase expansion your offices are located in certain regions of the company so you can only sell where you actually are at so you can get into different markets and competing markets depending on what your opponents where and what your opponents are in and then finally you get to the kind of the most crucial part of the phase of selling and again that's where your kind of price and capabilities are going to come in like generally the people will kind of snag up the cheaper phones first and then maybe you can get in the market with your more expensive phones and a different company and balance it out um, and then finally kind of the last phase of the round is going to be your profit and that's going to where it's going to you're going to see how well you did and the idea is to score the most money and then you win so very real world, <laughs> very kind of uh, kind of key marketing, economics, and maybe some like product development um, topics are in this game. I guess we've kind of highlighted what ages we think it could be good for. I guess, like the concepts are too hard, but the gameplay might be a, kind of a little complicated. But I'd still put it in like probably like middle schoolers, like maybe twelve to like teenagers. Well, would probably have no problem playing it. Smartphone Inc. is another one of those games that falls into my favorites, so I do agree. I think it's about the right age group to start this game on, and the idea of uh, competitive markets and and where do you spend your time with research to try to outsmart your opponents and be able to sell more phones at higher prices, that's ultimately the goal of the game and and a great lesson in in how modern marketing and economics work i guess yeah i think it could be a pretty cool like icebreaker or something if you were actually bringing it into the classroom or something like that you know to for like an intro to marketing class like you could kind of see how those rudimentary topics kind of work um, in the basic gameplay and then you'll kind of actually learn about them in the class would be kind of cool I will wrap things up for games, taking on a little bit of history. And with probably the oldest game on this list as well, with Axis and Allies from originally Avalon Hill, but currently uh, published and distributed by Hasbro. 
in Axis and Allies, I see this game as the perfect tabletop war game that embodies all of the major military elements of World War II. After a bunch of dry lessons of battles and holocausts and politics in the classroom, Axis and Allies embodies all of those things, but in game form. Okay, maybe not the Holocaust part, but the rest of it. The politics and the battles, that part's all very well incorporated. The players can really see where these major powers took hold on a global scale and see why World War II was such a truly worldwide uh, conflict. In the game, players will play as one of the five major world powers of the conflict. The United States, England, and Russia all represent the Allied powers, while Germany and Japan represent the Axis powers. And while there were certainly more powers in the war than just those, those were all of the biggest major players. Uh, so it's the, what the game is trying to emulate. So from that, uh, players will start with some of their forces on the board, very typical for a game like this. And it's all orientated around trying to emulate those positions of those different factions in 1942. But as the game progresses, you start to make, you know, as players, you start to make decisions on where to take territory, where to develop technology, uh, where to attempt to claim global dominance by defeating the opposing sides, access or allied sides. Almost every time I've ever played this game, it's been Germany trying to make a, you know, has a mad blitzkrieg and collapses Western Europe followed by can they either you know make the decision do they break England or do they break uh, Russia and if they can succeed in one of those then it's probably a good chance that the team axis has a good shot at winning or if uh, somehow the allied folks can can hold off long enough then usually the tide of the battle can be turned of course the Jap- the Japan and is is trying to hold out and give by Germany time. At least that's the feel of it. Because then the Ger- you know if the German battles in Europe or in the Soviet Union can break and they can kind of knock one of those Allied players into a bit of a state of defeat, then uh, that'll hold help hold off and keep America out of the game. So it's very historical in that regard, while still being a, a game that's a, a bit. Uh, Still abstract enough that you don't get into the extreme nitty-gritty, but it has all the elements of air, sea, and land battles all represented in the game, along with a bunch of the major historical technology accomplishments that that occurred during the war. And you dug deep on that one. I was going to crack a joke about how you, how you mentioned it was like one of the older games here. Like I was wondering if it could be like considered kind of one of the earliest kind of more complex board games like how there's any number of them now but i feel like you know it's not like monopoly or whatever sorry or battleship or something like that it's a fairly complicated game for how old it is i'm sure there's a lot of other ones that are less famous but it's pretty a lot cool. of those yeah there's a lot of those older games from avalon hill that are particularly this his, historically based games that have been around for ever it seems like and not all of them are are actively published anymore but this is one that's stuck with the times and heck i saw them playing the axis and allies and a tournament at gen con so hey it's still got a big following 
I was going to say, I haven't played that one in years. I used to own a copy of Axis and Allies. So it was a good game, though. I still own a copy. <laughs> did, I, did they ever update the rules <laughs> at all, or is it still pretty much play the same? It it they, it pretty much plays the same, but there have been minor tweaks and revisions over the years to the, the core rules. I'd have to check. I think the latest one is like a 2012 or something like that was the latest reprint slash update rules rules tweak update cleanup i think more info can be found on board game geek on uh, the precise dates of when access and allies was last updated so i think that wraps things up for our recommendations for our back to school board games on today's show we covered our interview with sophisticated cerberus games and their first game the stifling dark coming to kickstarter on october 4th on our hobby corner where i talked about 3d printing brian and i talked about our knights models batman miniature game painting progress and suzanne covered her work on the mdf terrain kits from tt combat and foreground Finally, we caught up on the games where we were playing, including Fall of the Mountain King from Burnt Island Games and The Spill from Smirkin' Laughter Games. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts. Oh, and by the way, give us a like on our Facebook page. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Pinterest while you're at it. If you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Ah, oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.